Hi, this is Dale Buchanan, the host of Puppy Talk Podcast. Before we get started today, I wanted to let you know of my new book, The Complete Puppy Training Manual. It's available on Amazon in four formats Kindle ebook, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. You can find it on Amazon right now. It's called The Complete Puppy Training Manual, and I will put a link in the show notes of this episode. I'm Dale Buchanan, and this is Puppy Talk, the podcast that offers advice on how to raise a healthy, happy, and obedient puppy. This podcast is sponsored by Top Gun Dog Training. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast now so you don't miss a single episode of Puppy Talk. Welcome to episode number 16 of Puppy Talk. Today I have a very exciting guest. Her name is Kim Brophy. She is an applied ethologist and professional family dog mediator, working to solve problems between people and dogs with modern science. Kim is a certified dog behavior consultant and certified professional dog trainer. I've seen Kim's presentation on ethology for dogs in the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, which was last October. Both times I was blown away by her knowledge, experience, and information. I'm currently reading Kim's book, Meet Your Dog, The Game-Changing Guide to Understanding Your Dog's Behavior. If you've not read that book yet, please go out and get it. You can see more about Kim on her website, dogdoorcanineservices.com. So welcome, Kim. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. We are going to have a great time talking about a lot of great stuff. 2021 has already presented a few challenges that we talked about earlier in the dog training and dog behavior consulting community. But first of all, since your specialty is applied ethology, why don't you go ahead and explain what that is to the people listening? Sure. So ethology is the study of dog behavior uh, and, and really focuses on the study, sorry, ethology is just the study of animal behavior, focusing on the, the animal's behavior in their natural habitat. From a biological perspective, an evolutionary perspective, looking at uh, all of the things that are going to contribute to um, an animal and how it's operating in order to be successful in that natural habitat. And Applied ethology differs from traditional ethology in that uh, it's really focusing on animals that are in captive or domesticated settings. So animals that are under some form of human control. And it really challenges us to look at all of the variables uh, that go into that complex situation. So also human behavior then becomes part of the equation. What are we doing? How are we interacting with the animal? Uh, What kind of environment do we create as a habitat for that animal if they are in captivity? What type of enrichment do we have available for them? What are some of the challenges that they might run into in that kind of uh, captive environment when their instincts aren't able to express themselves naturally? Uh, how does that affect their health? And there's many different applications for it. And most of the folks that are in applied ethology are working with animals in zoos or laboratories, and then primarily farms, so in agriculture. And very few are focusing on companion animals, I think, because we don't really think of them as being captive animals. We know that they're domesticated and under our human control that way. But frankly, I think most of us just grew up in a world where dogs and cats were pets, and we almost have this subconscious idea that they're just for us, and we're we're a bit divorced from the reality of the fact that they are an animal and are still subject to the same types of uh, evolutionary forces and, and biological factors that affect all other species. This sounds like fascinating information. We're going to get deeper into this in a little while, but how does this information help people that are going to get a new puppy or already have one, how does this information help them learn to manage that puppy's life and give them the things that they need? You hinted on it a little bit when you just mentioned about what applied ethology is, but can you go a little bit deeper into that? Sure. Well, very much uh, central to my mission and why I'm trying to get uh, the 
the contributions of ethology to become more mainstream at the table, not just in the professional dog behavior world, but in terms of the the public who loves their dogs and lives with their dogs, is that the ethology piece really gives us a reality check for what the point of reference should be for what an animal's needs are going to be and what their natural behaviors are going to be. And therefore, what our expectations and provisions and practices need to be that coincide with that. So a lot of the behavior problems, quote unquote, that we're seeing today aren't so much related to training problems or something that we need to go to a dog trainer or behavior specialist to have, quote, fixed. They're really the result of some of our negligence related to the implications of our modern environment for the genetics and the biology that a lot of these dogs are bringing to the table. The all how you raise them, it's all how you raise them mantra that's become very popular in the last 10 years, which is well-intentioned. I'm trying to speak against things like breed-specific legislation or breed banning, you know, judging dogs simply by their breed, etc., all that being very well-intentioned. The backlash of that being the it's all how you raise the mantra has led the public to believe that all of the different breeds and shapes and sizes and colors and types of these dogs don't matter, that it's really just all superficial and and at the heart, they're all exactly the same. So if we operate that way, then we are going to find that we have a lot of misunderstandings about what we're looking at with their behaviors when we humans might have bred some things into them that we now have preserved in our modern dogs that we no longer have a desire or tolerance for. You know, and I know that dog training may not be best suited to, and I, and I do dog, mostly dog training and a little bit of behavior modification, but I specialize in dog training with puppies. And when we don't get to our puppies or our dog's needs, their requirements based on the things that you have in your book of the phenotype and the legs, learning environment, genetics, and self, which we're going to get to in just a second. What happens to the dog at that point? Because like you just said, a behavior consultant may not fix the issue. And the key here is fix. Everybody calls up to say, can you fix this problem? On a deeper level of knowing about applied ethology, how can owners use that to actually raise, if they're having problems on a behavior level, how, how can they use that information to their benefit if they know, for example, and I know you always use this, border collie, okay, the border collie, the herding breed. Their needs are different than some other dogs, so how can they use that information to help give the dog some of the things that they need? I think going back briefly to kind of describe the result and, and the pickle that we're in and then hopefully provide some productive answers for you about what to do about it. The public has effectively been on the other end of the pet industry having grown in leaps and bounds in the last 20 years. It's one of the fastest growing industries. It has been absolutely resistant to the the different ups and downs in the economy. People love their dogs and they'll spend a lot of money on them, cats too, but mostly our pups. What does that mean? It means people are marketing to the pet public, the pet owning public. And what does marketing like to do? It likes to make big promises that are oversimplified and not very realistic to deliver. So just go ahead and first think about that a lot of the marketing that you're going to get thrown at you from dog training professionals, books, TV shows, etc. is going to make it all seem a lot more simple than it actually is. And just recognize that you're on the other end of that. We've all been kind of enculturated in that for some years now. Because the real issue that we're talking about here is what I refer to as kind of the lock and key problem. So in nature, you have all of these different species that have been designed by their environments to interact appropriately as a niche in a particular habitat to be successful. That's how selection works. That's how natural selection works for individuals and then species across generations. So fundamentally, if you take a fish out of water, so to speak, and you put the key in the wrong lock, what do you get when you try to put a key in the wrong lock? You get friction. 
that's basically what we're seeing in America's dogs right now is lots and lots of friction because you might have an animal that was bred to work 12, 14 hour day on a farm, um, who is expected to live an idle life in an apartment at the top of a you know 20 story building or something, only getting outside for an hour a day. And then it looks like the dog has aggression towards strangers when you take them out on a leash and they're explosively lunging and snarling and barking at everything that they see because they are so frustrated. And then they finally get outside only to find they still don't have autonomy because now they're on a leash and now they're just stimulated by all the things that they're seeing in some metropolitan city as they're going for their one hour daily walk. And there's really no reconciling that for them, right? To be honest with you, There isn't a one thing that we can do to solve that problem on the back end other than to try to find opportunities for our dogs to have decompression in nature, to use Sarah Strumming's term for that, relief from the things that they are trying to reconcile in their frustrations inside themselves, to reference Andrew Hale, both people that I respect tremendously. They need new solutions. They need for us as not just a dog professional community, but as a culture to start recognizing that they're really in a situation where they're experiencing a mental health crisis because they cannot operate naturally based on the instincts that we selected into them for generations. Most of them are finding themselves a fish out of water. Most of these dogs were not bred for indoor sedentary lifestyles of unemployment, and yet that's what they're facing. So I think new solutions like these kinds of pay-by-the-hour rented fenced safe spaces where people can take their dogs and literally not train them, leave them alone, let them explore and smell and do whatever uh, comes to mind or instinct for them and start seeing things a little bit differently outside the box rather than them needing to be a minion that follows our every command. (laughs) You're talking about sniff spot, I think. <laughs> yeah, th- things like sniff spot, and but I think sniff spot is one model. I actually think, you know, I'd love to see someone with deep pockets and an interest in making a lot of money go around and buy up chunks of land, throw up consistent quality fences and basic infrastructure with an online scheduling membership program where people can just go in, put their credit card number into this online scheduling thing set it up, clock in with some kind of a membership card like at the gym, lock the door behind them and have a fenced space in nature with just them and their dogs for an hour. I think you just found your new franchise. No way. Not on, on my <laughs> bandwidth, but somebody needs to do it. <laughs> uh, somebody out there is going to do it, I'm sure. We have a little bit of a problem here in South Florida because it gets hot, so hot during the summer. And I run into this a lot when I get a client that has a new puppy or they maybe have a six-month or 12-month-old puppy, and I say, well, how much exercise does your dog get? And the dog's a husky. They say, well, we take the dog outside for a walk, and it will not go in the sun. It's too hot. It's 95 degrees with a heat index of 110. And then that's humid. How do we overcome things like that? You said bring the dog out into nature a lot, and that helps them with their natural environment. But what if we don't have that natural environment in South Florida? Do we just look for a different dog that's going to be better suited for the family, for the home, for the environment, for the region? How does that work? Well, I, you know, your example is a good one. And unfortunately, I think that these hard conversations are the types of things that we need to be having because we're not going to find real lasting solutions unless we do. Listen, there's a real pickle about breeds of dogs that were developed in entirely different kinds of climates all over the world. And then we bring them to any state that we want just because we fancy them. And a lot of dogs can't thrive in certain types of environments. They just can't. I had a client one time years ago. We're in the mountains of North Carolina here. And she moved to Florida with her huskies. And within about six months, one of her huskies' skin was starting to rot because of the amount of moisture that was being retained close to the skin. So the only thing that would give the dog any relief outside in the warmer months was a kiddie pool. But then the moisture would then get trapped beneath the the undercoat and and it was creating all sorts of skin issues. And she was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And hey, I'm not blaming the public here. I think this is what we really need to 
be then putting back out on a larger scale for the culture and um, this country and, and other developed countries as well, nature would have solved those problems. So let's assume we had a population of dogs that ended up in Florida and the ones with the really thick coats weren't doing well and they couldn't adapt to the circumstances. Nature would solve that problem with natural selection. One of the problems with breeding dogs and spaying and neutering all of the other dogs that we don't consider good enough to be breeding means that we can't, we aren't letting nature solve its own problems. It can't work out those kinks and say, this doesn't work well in these conditions, so it will be selected against. So if we are going to literally transport these different breeds of dogs from one habitat and environment and ecosystem or climate to another, then we have to be ready for more friction. And I think the sky is the limit in terms of creative possibilities. Frankly, I've had a fantasy for years that I'd love to see something like an enormous indoor Disney world for dogs, where literally you had whole different sections that were developed for the different breeds. Imagine, for instance, having a fake snow developed kind of indoor or outdoor something that was set up for for dogs. And, And yes, I realize this probably sounds completely insane. There's a good reason nobody's done it. It would be very expensive, hard to pull off, maybe not even very practical. But I think it almost points to the ridiculousness of what we're actually doing with the breeding if we're not looking at the implications of continuing to breed dogs that were developed for very specific sets of circumstances and yet placing them absolutely anywhere. You have a lot of great ideas. Well, I I, I probably have some problematic ideas, <laughs> you know, um, meaning I, you know, yes, it's easy to, to see all of these problems. It's not always easy to find our way out of them. For me at this point in my career, I just think I'm done beating around the bush. Mm-hmm. I want people to be honest and be brave enough, bold enough to have these tough conversations and quit acting like they're dog training issues when they're not. Right. So how does a dog trainer have these conversations? How do you recommend that dog trainers or behavior consultants or anybody have these conversations when a dog has come into an environment and into a certain area of the country that it's not suited for and it's suffering, it's developing medical problems like the one you described before or and or behavior problems how does this conversation start and where does it go i do work directly with the public i still see 30 or 40 private clients a week so i'm i'm very much in those shoes on a regular basis of having to have those conversations uh it's one of the reasons i developed the legs model was so that it would be easy enough to talk about and so i would offer that as a a, a way to open the door so When I'm talking to a client about those difficult cases, I will literally pull out one of my intake forms here and I will uh, show it. Nobody here listening can see this, but, you know, I'll show them the back of my page that says learning, environment, genetics and self. And I will have written over in the side here. So for your dog, this is what's going on with the learning. For your dog, this is what's going on with the environment, the genetics, the self, those external conditions of the environment, internal conditions of the self, genes they're bringing to the table, what learning has done, can do, can't do, etc. And then what I might be able to do, just mapping it for them, is say, so your learning bit here isn't really going to have any effect on this problem we're having between the environment and the genetics. This is where your rub is. You're having a lock and a key issue. And maybe it's showing up in the self, in the health. Maybe it's showing up in what looks like training problems because your dog is so frustrated that they can't even learn new information. They're not able to even change their own behavior because their, their level of distress is so high. And then we look at it together and we say, okay, We can't change your dog's genetics. What can we change? Can we change your environment? Are there things that are either available to you in your local environment, if not your immediate environment, that might provide some relief? Or are we going to find that we are at a bit of an impasse here and then we have to have other difficult conversations? Are you planning on staying in Florida for the rest of your life with your husky? Or did you just take a job that you're expecting to last a year or two in which case we can look at one of the other legs for temporary support. If you think of it really like four legs, right? So if one of them is kind of broken or compromised or injured, so let's say 
you know, that animal's environment is the piece that's really dysfunctional. So they have good genes, they're a good individual self-dog, and they've had great training and socialization. Everything else is rounded out, but that E just isn't working for them, the environment. We can kind of shim up that table, so to speak, with help from one of the other legs. Temporarily, that can work. So in that case, we might decide Let's say that the husky, um, it's not a health problem per se, but maybe, you know, they need a little bit of uh, a different grooming in order for the skin to be able to tolerate the climate for this next summer. And then the frustration they're experiencing from being in this particular environment and not being able to get enough opportunity to express natural behavior or exercise. Maybe we will medicate that dog with something for a year, maybe puppy Prozac, maybe Trazodone, maybe Gabapentin, maybe CBD and melatonin, variety of things that we could try where we can shave off some of the emotional edges for him that he's experiencing in his distress, knowing that's temporary. And if the person says, you know what, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in Florida, then I might say to them, do you have a friend or a cousin or um, something that lives in another state? If this is really going to be a long-term problem, the question for you as an owner, no judgment for me, is do you want to medicate the dog for the rest of his life if that's what's required for him to cope? Or would it be better for you to move or to re rehome the dog to a place where he's going to be able to be more functional? Because if we keep calling certain things training problems that have really nothing to do with training, when that's really a habitat issue, a lock and a key issue, we're just going to keep cycling through the same kinds of problems and I'll probably make the same mistakes with yet another dog. So I think failing to call a spade a spade with, their, with our clients is a mistake. Yeah. Of the four legs, the learning environment, genetics, and self, is there one that you're seeing more of recently over the others or are they pretty much equal across the board? Well, I think what's happened is that uh, we're going to increasingly see more lock and key issues. So I, I and talking to my colleagues, I, I, that's what I'm hearing from others as well. So not just, you know, here in the clientele that I'm seeing in Western North Carolina, but nationally, I think that the gene pool is deteriorating because of what's happened there with our artificial selection valuing purebred dogs and this very well-intentioned spay-neuter programs that unfortunately are eliminating from the population some of the dogs nature has done a good job breeding that otherwise might have been good to keep in the gene pool because they are adapting to some circumstances. The gene pool is becoming increasingly compromised uh, and we are maintaining all sorts of historic breeds and even popularizing certain historic breeds even though we don't plan on using them for the things they were bred for. While our environment is becoming simultaneously, increasingly indoors, sedentary, and yet more overstimulating all at the same time. It's kind of like being trapped inside a small hotel room with Disney World going on outside around you. You can't participate, you can't engage, but you just have to watch all the flashing lights, hear the fireworks, and hear the stupid songs going over and over again on a daily basis. It's kind of a recipe for madness for our poor canine friends. It is. I live in that environment. I live <laughs> in what you described because I live in an apartment community where 95% of the dogs that are being raised here have that exact situation. Yeah. They're, they're inside. They get two or three walks a day. They're a cattle dog, yeah. a golden retriever, a golden doodle, a Labrador retriever, a husky, a German shepherd. And they have no life and they sit on the back porch and they bark a lot and they're all pent up. And when they get outside and they go for the walk and they get out of the elevator, they're on their back legs and they're up, their front end is up and they're reacting and barking to everything because they are under socialized, under mental stimulation, under enrichment, under everything. Yeah, you just explained it perfectly. And I never see it more than in apartment complexes, Dale. Yeah, it's bad. You know, it's it's so apartment complexes, sadly, dog friendly apartment complexes <laughs> are the worst because it's like the gauntlet for them when they exit their apartment. They're they're like, everything's coming out of the woodworks, you know, there's people, there's dogs, there's children, there's bikes, there's scooters, there's cars, there's motorcycles, and and yet there's still no autonomy. They actually can't even learn how to cope 
with trial and error and natural instincts and choices and control that are even appropriate to the conditions, because we have to keep them on leashes, we, you know, things that are part of being a responsible society. I'm not saying like, oh, don't put your dog on a leash, that'll all make everything better. No, not at all. It has to be an even playing field at this point. But there are certain types of dogs that could cope with those circumstances better. And that should be the aim of our breeding, you know, not like, oh, aren't Huskies so beautiful? I mean, Husky's a great one to pick on too, in addition to a border collie, because they're amazing, remarkable dogs to have as a companion if you have the right conditions to afford them the opportunity to express natural behaviors and be who they are. But they are very difficult to live with in a situation in which their needs are not being met. Right. A lot of dogs are difficult to live with in the situation that I'm in. Mm -hmm. My next episode is a solo episode on how to raise a puppy in an apartment. Because I did mm. a great job with Dixie. Mm -hmm. You met her. She goes to a very high quality daycare for mm -hmm. five hours, three days a week. She goes to the dog park three days a week with me and does agility. And she socialized. I got her at eight, 10 weeks old. And I got her around people all the time from the very beginning. I got her around dogs. She loves everybody and every dog. She comes inside. She's laying down right here. She's very calm. She's never barked inside once. She doesn't play bites. She doesn't have any behavior issues at all. I leave. Dixie, I'm leaving. She goes right in her crate. She lays down. No issues. None. Why? Well, I've mastered the art of apartment living with your dog, but I got a 17-pound dog, right? and I didn't get a dog that I had that died last year, which was a Husky Lab mix and 75 pounds. I didn't get a big dog again because, again, I live in an apartment. So you have to kind of take some of these things into consideration of your environment, which is one of the four things that you have on your legs. But what about when we get into the phenotypes? Because in your presentation of the, in the Aggression in Dogs conference and in the master course, you talk about all of the different phenotypes of dogs. How does that play into it? Because I know I've got a herding breed and I did not want a herding breed. I just saw her and I said, oh, she's cute. And so what a lot of people do. So how do you address that when people say, oh, this dog is cute, but they take into no consideration the phenotype of that dog? So how does that fit into it? Well, and so, you know, a, a way to think about the phenotype is really just um, legs. You have, you know, legs is an easy acronym for phenotype because um, it just means the combined confluence of all of those variables of, you know, the history of the environment in which the, that animal's ancestors um, lived, uh, the history of the genetics that proved relevant to their survival in those conditions, and the physical attributes, all of the different characteristics uh, that help them operate in that environment successfully in terms of their morphology. But the phenotype also includes behavior. And I think that's what's hard for people to think about and, and flies in the face of the things that we've been told about how it's all how you raise them. The phenotype, for instance, includes modal action patterns that the animal was selected for. So your herding dog there uh, is going to, um, at least in a standard deviation likelihood, so if you're looking at kind of points on a graph of where those individuals are going to fall, take a litter of puppies, you know, you have like some that are going to fall right in the middle of what the breeders of herding dogs were intending for, and then you have some that are going to be slight outliers and then increasing outliers from there, but you're going to have this kind of standard deviation range of the behaviors. So out of any given herding breeds, you're going to have some with a high propensity towards the types of perceptions of, say, sudden environmental contrast. That's a term us taint trainers like to throw around a lot. You know, sudden environmental contrast is something out of pattern that occurs. It's arousing to really any animal to, to perceive some saliency. But with herding dogs, we bred for a higher response to sudden environmental contrast because it really is helpful in a context of herding livestock and moving other animals because that way they're sensitive to the fact that that sheep is even thinking about moving left and this one over here is starting to straggle in the back or, you know, and they can react very quickly to those changing conditions. If you are someone who is aware of what that dog is experiencing and how they might perceive those different stimuli in the environment, the events of, say, someone walking into your front door unannounced or a little child, you know, running laps around your coffee table, playing tag with their sibling or something like that, that then might 
accidentally turn on the, oh, I'm supposed to rush at it, barking and nip at it to control it behavior that is natural to the phenotype of something like a herding dog. If, if you're aware of that, you can prepare for it and you can set that animal up for success. You can help inform that, hey, that's not actually a sheep. We're not really going to herd the kid. As opposed to going, oh my gosh, why did your dog bite the child? Or why did my dog do that? What a bad dog. I have to punish that behavior. And then you don't know what you're looking at. It's like the dogs don't ask for these instincts that we humans painstakingly bred into them for these historical jobs to make it part of their phenotype. And now we look at those behaviors. We're so divorced from their ancestral roots and the history that created them to begin with across the world. We just think they're cute. We like the color. We like the shape. We like the size. We like these other little quirky characteristics. And so we completely misunderstand what we're looking at. My whole thing from applied ethology and the value, not just for the profession, but for the public, is that reality check so that you know what you're looking at. You know what you're likely, not necessarily, but likely going to see emerge at some point. You can be prepared for it. You can make sure that you can meet that dog's needs before you bring them home, ideally give them appropriate healthy outlets for behaviors like what you're doing for her, giving her the opportunity to go to daycare. I bet there's some report from some of the staff at daycare that she likes to be the fun police, and that's probably giving her a great healthy outlet for micromanaging other living beings. Most herding dogs like to have some type of an outlet for micromanaging others. Perfectly natural for them. Really annoying and strange and seeming like a, quote, behavior problem if you don't have that practical point of reference for the phenotype. Mm-hmm. So a cattle dog that I trained and the lady calls me and lives in my community. And she says, my dog reacts to cats. It sees a cat on the other side of the fence and it starts barking and going crazy. And it embarrasses me. I need this fixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can't really, I mean, it's, it's react, it's doing its natural thing, right? Mm -hmm. So so a lot of these things that dog trainers get called on to fix are just natural behaviors of the dog in their natural environment. Right. We have to identify that. Exactly. Because think about it. Otherwise, you know, if you look at it like it's a training issue without the understanding of what you're looking at in the first place, you're going to find yourself very frustrated as the owner or as the professional trying to change that behavior. Because here's something really tricky about phenotype and anything that has enough reinforcement history to have been passed on from one generation to the other as genetic information for behavior. Instincts, modal action patterns, skip the frontal lobe filter and executive function decision-making. So that's not like the cattle dog is like, gee, I think I'm going to react to the cat. In that way, it's not even a choice. It's an impulse. And so if, you, if you're punishing the expression of the impulse and you're trying to reinforce an alternate behavior without the appreciation for the, the tide and the current you're working against there, then you're likely to do things in a way that is going to be less effective and possibly even abusive psychologically, if not physically, to the animal because they don't even understand why they're doing what they're doing. Right. And that's making the dog worse than they were if they were just being natural and barking at the cat and just going the other direction and not really worrying about it and not making a big deal out of it, which is where we went with the training, by the way. We worked on other things too, but that was one of the things we worked on. And that's that's great. I'm glad to hear all of that. A couple of things on your website that you have, and it kind of got my attention. Not in Kansas anymore. Things are different now, raising dogs, especially over the last year and last five years, than they were 50, 20 years ago, correct? Absolutely. I mean, actually, it's it's interesting. I feel blessed that I got to see all in one lifetime the change because I was born into the world before it is what it is now. I grew up in Atlanta in the 70s and 80s, and the dogs were still loose in Atlanta. I grew up surrounded by a host of neighborhood dogs that were my friends that I would follow around and they would follow me around. And our, you know, family golden retriever puppy would occasionally go for a three mile run with God knows who that they met in the front yard and followed for their daily jog. And 
we would look at that now and say, oh, that's that's negligent. Oh, we were so careless. We weren't being good stewards and dog owners. But that is actually how dogs still live in 80% of the world, where they live with people, but they still have some autonomy. And that gives them the opportunity to create their own welfare. So I think that what's going to happen now as we're not in Kansas anymore, and the dogs don't have these opportunities to solve their own problems, either genetically or individually through the choices that they're making and the things that they're choosing to engage in, their own relationships, et cetera, is that they're they're really quite disoriented. And we have to stop and appreciate, this is a sudden phenomenon. This has occurred in my lifetime, and I'm not that old. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's been a drop in the bucket, really, uh, of time, evolutionarily speaking. And for us, though, it's just the reality that we know, and particularly the younger generations. So I'd say, you know, anyone under 30 probably doesn't have any point of reference. So for them, dogs are just on leashes and fences, period. That's how it works. And I would encourage folks to, you know, think about traveling to other countries where dogs are still living in this you know, original relationship where, where humans and dogs are coexisting. Uh, and, and maybe dogs are even employed for specific jobs, but it's the pet phenomenon is less common. And, and it's not that our intentions are bad. I spoil my pets rotten. Uh, I love them dearly. They're family members. I am not saying that we need to go back to some archaic utilitarian model either. I believe that we can have the best of both worlds and evolve our relationship with dogs who we clearly love so deeply in a way that is meaningful and can challenge and shatter the molds that we've had of both dominion, that it's our right to make them do what we want for us. They are our tabula rosa that they're here for us. We need to just throw that one out. And to understand and really appreciate the critical role that ethology plays in our understanding of their needs and therefore what kind of breeding and what kind of environments we need to be thinking about going forward for the next generations of dogs. I remember listening to an episode of the By the End of the Dog with Michael Shikashi. I think it was Trish McMillan he was interviewing, and they were talking about being in Puerto Rico, and the dogs would be running around free. They had very few veterinary offices because the dogs weren't getting sick. They had very little training. They just, in their natural environment, doing the things that they like to do best, there was very little aggression. There is very little behavior issues, and they saw that as something that was just very eye-opening. To I think maybe it was Mexico. It was somewhere. It was a different country, and they saw that, and they related to how people, like you said, they coop up dogs in an apartment or in a house. I've gone to people's houses, and they said, you know, I do a little consultation with them first. I say, tell me about your dog. How much exercise does it get? Well, it goes out back, and it runs a little bit. Then it comes inside, and it lays down. Where's it gone potty? On the pee pads. Well, how much, what type of training do you, have you done with this dog? Nothing. That's why I called you. What type of enrichment or anything? Nothing. It just goes out back. Has it ever been on a leash? No. And the dog's two years old. Now think about that dog, how many problems it has. Fear, stress, anxiety, borderline, maybe aggressive, aggressive behavior. But the other dogs that we see that were, that were Mike talked about in, Mexico or Puerto Rico, I forget where, they're just free and happy and they're living a great life and they have no issues. Well, and I've, I've seen this now in Argentina and Mexico. I've had the chance to observe that phenomenon. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable because nature's really good at solving its own problems. Literally, this is why I love ethology, is because if you look at just the genius of, of biology and ecosystems and species and and things in their natural habitat. Nature for millions of years has solved its own problems in spades. It has all of these genius systems of checks and balances. So the individuals have the opportunity to solve their own problems for their lifetime. lifetime. And there are systems and, and um, concepts, uh, you know, principles in place that help those experiences and that learning and those adaptations then literally change the genetic information that gets passed on to subsequent informa- subsequent generations. And all of that is new to our understanding, the whole field of epigenetics and how genes are literally changed through experiences. So if we weren't meddling so much in terms of their control of their immediate environments and in terms of our control of their genes, 
then they would be able to solve their own problems. And humans quite fancy themselves as playing God and thinking we're the only thing that could solve any of the problems. There are some really important questions we need to be asking about how best we can help dogs and whether we can solve the problems that we've now created accidentally with the same things that got us here in the first place. I don't know. Nobody at this point knows what specifically are going to be the answers. But there have been some various proposals uh, in the last few decades from folks like Ray Coppinger, who have said for years now, um, and he's since recently passed, but was a, a powerful leader in the canine science movement, we need to be breeding for the conditions, at the very least. We need to be breeding for the conditions and the expectations that we have, preserving breeds of dogs for a world that no longer can afford them the opportunity to be who they are is a unique, if accidental, type of cruelty. Are you in contact with certain breeders around the country? If somebody was to come to you and say, I'm going to do the matchmaker thing on your website, are you sending them to a breeder that you think is going to breed them a dog that would be suitable for their lifestyle? Is that something that you do? Gosh, I wish it had already gotten to that point. I would love for things to get to the point where you could have people be able to approach breeders with conditions and then have breeders hearing that and then being responsive to those pressures and conditions. I'm not saying no breeders are doing that, but I sure as heck don't think that's the normalcy. I think everything is about preserving the original breed standards and the romanticism of things that are historic and then making new designer breeds just because they look cute or sound cute or something like that with not a lot of attention to, wow, what would actually work, right? And so I, I, I am a part of a group uh, online that is a, a group that's trying to ask these kinds of questions. And I've just found them through Jessica Heckman, who is a geneticist who's also involved in the canine behavior and breeding world. And they're doing some good stuff when it comes to posing these kinds of questions to the public and to breeders to say, what are the things we need to be thinking about? I think we're just at the beginning of that arc, though. I think, having been in this field for 20 years, I think we are at the very beginning of the tide shift and the pendulum swing. I, again, have felt like I've been out on a limb for 20 years with nobody wanting to hear these things. And then just in 2020, it's like people can't get enough of it, maybe because we finally stopped our speedy pace of life in a way that gave us enough time to consider things that are outside of that, that normal routine we'd all become accustomed to in that pace. But people seem really ready to tackle those questions, to ask those hard questions and, and look at what will be some meaningful solutions. And I think part of that is we have to break the mold of the entire concept of dog training, which is really terrifying to people because we all are kind of hanging our hats on like dog trainers are the people who fix all of those problems. And it is not a dog trainer's problem to fix, frankly. I know. I have it as a question right here. Fix it mentality from Mike's podcast. Yeah. That's on my list of questions. <laughs> and you brought that up. You're reading my mind. <laughs> I, I get called to fix things all the time. And I don't even use the word fix. They will use the word fix. I need. I had one lady call me and I, I, I mentioned this to the the aggression in dogs uh, group, Facebook group. And I said, lady called me and said, she wants her dog's aggression squashed. Oh my gosh. I said, well, I'd be happy to consult with you and start a case on this. Oh no, no, no. I don't want a case started. I don't want my dog taken away by humane society. I said, I don't work for humane society. I'm, I'm a dog trainer. I do behavior modification and dog training. I, I don't know you're getting, you're creating a story, but in addition, there's no way to squash the aggression. And she didn't, it didn't go anywhere. So. This is, and trainers have done little to help this, frankly, historically over the years, because we, we've been kind of career wise put in this bucket of, say, a service person you call to your house to fix an appliance that's not functioning correctly. And we are the people who understand how it works, have all the right tools in our truck, and can push the buttons and suddenly make the thing operational again. And that is a horrible model. And frankly, I would like to challenge dog trainers to stop promoting the idea. Any dog, any breed, any size, any age, any problem, I can fix it. Guaranteed. Money back results. It's just not helping. Because when it doesn't work, 
you just say, oh, well, it's the owner's fault or, oh, there's just something particularly wrong with your dog. He's an excessive weirdo. And, and instead of saying, oh, wait, wow, I don't actually have a magic wand. <laughs> and wait, I need to hold these people accountable. They continue to say, oh, I'm all powerful and I have the best techniques ever. Just watch me work my magic. And that's why I'm offering this whole idea of family dog mediation as another possible way to look at this, because it invites both parties, both species to the table as meeting in the reality of the crosshairs of this relationship where we have this modern world that we're sharing this life with our dog with. And we've got to work it out. We're having a relationship. We're having misunderstandings. We're having problems with lifestyle, you know, and, and it needs to be dealt with on those terms squarely. And, and we need to stop endorsing the idea that people can say, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. I'm going to hire you, Dale, to fix it. I'll be back in an hour. That, sh- that we shouldn't fly that anymore. I relieve so much stress from my life by not even complying to those laundry list of fix-it requests and just referring it to somebody else. I just have a very short phone conversation. That's not the way I work. Have a good day. Here's a couple of referrals. But in addition, I think that a lot of the dog training community had got in the wrong direction years ago when people started using aversive behaviors because the public had requested Somebody, please find a quick fix for my dog's behavior because I can't live with it anymore. And some dog trainer or wannabe dog trainer came up with, let's use a shock collar. Let's use a prong collar. Let's do these things to to blunt the dog's personality and develop fear in them. And they will stop the barking and they will stop the lunging and they'll stop the aggression. But they've got all these other behaviors now that came up. But the owner just says, oh, this guy's great. He fixed the dog. Oh, I agree with you. And I I think, you know, putting lipstick on that uh, pig doesn't really work very well, frankly. And I think that we need to start changing all of the values and the vernacular around the conversation. Like, this is why I want to tackle the whole concept of dog training and things like obedience and how do you make a dog reliably responsive to your commands? It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, okay, you can create compliance with fear with force, arguably with bribery, but you have side effects for that. And there are massive implications to mental health, quality of life, emotional well-being, the relationship. And we're really not solving fundamental problems. And, and I know this is a horrible example, but I swear that show The Handmaid's Tale, When I watched that show, all I could think about was dog training, which is really sad. I've been doing this for 20 years and I watched this show, which is all about the oppression of, you know, a particular population in some dystopian future and how effectively they are able to get control of that population through some some amount of both exploiting the dependency that those people then have on them, same as dogs have on us, and then intimidating them, scaring them about any prospect of crossing their uh, established control over them. And I think we feel entitled as a species to do that to dogs. And I think it's, it's much closer to true and humane and ethical to use a parenting model of behavioral science and how we would be coaching and leading and guiding our children into an understanding of how to appropriately interact with the world that they've found themselves in, which recognizes and values the real pressures that they're facing, just like kids are facing these days. Dogs are facing real pressures, and it's not all under their choice and control in terms of how they handle it. And we can't simply chastise or bribe behavior change out of them. Dogs are facing real pressures. Only those that are on the front line, like you and I and other dog trainers and behavior consultants, that get calls and emails every day know this. They're, they're facing that. This is a big problem. I totally agree. You are so passionate. I mean, you're so, you have a mission. You're very passionate about this message. And I appreciate it so much. We could go all day about talking about this stuff, but we need to start wrapping this up. And I need to direct people to a couple of things. First of all, your book, 
Meet Your Dog. Where can they buy your book? Uh, any place that books are sold, really. It's in a lot of bookstores, Barnes & Noble. Most folks get it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it on Audible. You can get it um, in any place that sells ebooks. If you want to download the ebook, then um, it's available there as well. There's a lot of information on your website. Do you work with people remotely? Uh, we do. Yep, we work with clients all over the country. Um, right now, we're in uh, all virtual format until COVID improves a little bit anyhow. And we are redoing our website, so folks will see a lot of change there over the course of the next year. Uh, but we're we're doing uh, more to move into this professional education sphere full time, at least myself, while my other partner colleague uh, consultant will be taking um, the majority of the direct to public cases. But um, we have a lot of exciting things coming down the pike in 2021. Um, we have a on our course that we're going to be offering at Wolf Park will also be offered on, online uh, starting in the fall. We've had a lot of requests from other professionals saying that they weren't able to come in person or were concerned about COVID for the Wolf Park event. Uh, and we've realized that there's a lot of interest uh, from other pros that want to develop themselves in this direction. Nice. Are you going to be doing the Aggression in Dogs conference again this year? I don't think I'm going to be doing that this year. I will be uh, presenting at the APDT conference this year which I think is also going remote. Uh, that'll be, I think, at the beginning of October, the last weekend in September and first weekend of October. Right. Uh, but we have a, a limited bandwidth and are trying to squeeze in uh, what we can for the rest of this year. Wow. A limited bandwidth, like literally a limited bandwidth of, for technology? No, a li limited bandwidth of, of human time and energy. <laughs> I see. Because when I, yeah. I'm in, my background is electronics. My first career was electronics. So when you say bandwidth, I... I worked on <laughs> I worked on satellite systems in the 1980s. So you say bandwidth, I'm thinking frequency waves. So oh, if it was only as simple as having you come over here and increase my bandwidth by pushing a button and fixing it for me. <laughs> hey, you know what? There you go. That's a great way to end this to end this conversation here. And let's tell them again your website, which I think is beautiful. DogDoorCanineServices.com. Where else can they find you? Page on Facebook. Instagram. Yep, I, I love to connect with folks on Facebook. Not as huge on Instagram myself. Um, I welcome people messaging me on, on Facebook and connecting or contacting me through the website and my email. Uh, our company, The Dog Door, also has a Facebook page. Uh, and we will be uh, collecting actually some uh, initial email contacts and stuff who want to be the first to know about the course when it launches in the fall. So people can look for that on social media as well. Awesome. Kim, I want to thank you so much for being on this episode of Puppy Talk. And I think that the listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode as I did and some of the other people that are dog trainers and behavior consultants as well. So thank you again and have a great day. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me on. This is Dale Buchanan, host of Puppy Talk podcast. I have an announcement of a new book that I just published called Potty Training Your Puppy. It's available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback, soon to be available on audiobook. You can find out all the details of this book using the link in the show notes. It's called Potty Training Your Puppy. It's a comprehensive book with a simple and effective way to help potty train your puppy, and it really works. Check out the link in the show notes.